I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey guys, you ever wonder what Phil and I wear while we podcast? You can find out if you join our Patreon. We'll also be talking about the films of 1989, but that's definitely less important than seeing our Zoom backgrounds, our headphone choices, and our sweatshirts. It's true. It's true. You'll get to see all the various pieces of artwork that I have framed on my office wall, and you can see Kenny's garden, sort of. So that's something. That's exciting. It's a hanging garden. It's a hanging garden. Uh, But perhaps more important than anything, uh, we are doing this Patreon to cover the best films of 1989. Uh, Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Indiana Jones, The Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2 with amazing guests like Tom Meissen, Liz Hanna, Joanna Robinson, Brian Cogman, Chuck Hayward. You can sign up at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. And for $5, you'll get access to all the audio of these fantastic episodes. For a few bucks more, you'll get video as well of our 99 and 89 episodes. And perhaps, most importantly, you'll be supporting us uh, so we can just keep making podcast content for you guys. Welcome to Podcast Like It's 1999. I am your host, Phyllis Gove. And with me today to talk about Take This Sabbath Day is Jeff Greenstein, writer, executive producer, director. He's written on all your favorite shows, Friends, Will and Grace, Desperate Housewives, Parenthood, as well as directing episodes of Mom in the Neighborhood. Uh, He was on previously to talk about Peanuts, which was a standout episode, a great episode. If you have not listened to it, you should listen to it. I learned much about Peanuts during the course of that episode. Uh, But you're here to talk to us today about the West Wing. You're here to talk about specifically Take the Sabbath Day. But before we get to that, I want to ask you, 
was this a show you watched in 99? Was this a show that you jumped on at the beginning? Was this something you came to later? How did the West Wing come into your life? Yeah, this is a show I watched in 99. I remember, I, it'd be very interesting to go back to Variety and Hollywood Reporter and look at how this show was first announced. Because <laughs> I seem to recall when they said that Aaron Sorkin, who I only knew from American President, I had never seen Few Good Men or any of his other stuff. Sure. But when it was announced that he was doing a show about the White House, it was sort of in the wake of Clinton Lewinsky. Yep. And yep. the 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 gist of the release was, oh, Aaron Sorkin's doing a show about White House interns. And so there was a (laughs) lot of discussion about whether it was going to be sort of looking into the scandal and what's his point of view going to be. Anyway, whatever. That's really interesting. Isn't it interesting? And I I really think it would be worth going back to the trades to look at it because that was the spin at the top. It wasn't this is going to be a reprise of some of the themes and characters from American President. This is going to be a White White House intern show. You know, it's it's funny you bring that up because I know that there's been a, a that it went through some development. Obviously, this wasn't a show that was like an instant straight to series thing. This was something right. that was you know bought as a script or bought as perha- perhaps a put pilot, depending on the circumstances. Um, and I, from what I've read, NBC wasn't sure about how to navigate it, how to land this plane in the middle of nine. You know, this is this is September ninety nine, so you're shooting this in. April of 99, uh, you know, the, the, the impeachment trial happens in January of 99. So we're really talking months after. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it is interesting. And I'm sure that that speaks a lot to the tone of the show, which is a little bit, first of all, it's very, you know, some might say naive, but it's very sort of, you know, idealistic about the way that, that politics is run. Uh, it's also quite lighthearted at times and quite funny at times. Like, it's a real sort of navigation of tone that I think is the only way it could have weathered the internal yeah. NBC storm of, as you know very well, of pilot season and all the various things that go into that. So that is a, a take I had not thought about. Yeah, and I don't think it gets discussed in terms of the way that this show was first presented to the public. You know, that it was sort of in the wake of a presidency that had been clouded by scandal. And I remember that in the initial promos, which featured the Lisa Edelstein storyline that we're all sort of ambivalent mm-hmm. about, it was like, oh, here's the scandally storyline. Here's the storyline about the White House guy getting caught up in something unseemly. And interestingly, it's the least successful part of the show. It, it is the idealistic, you know, uh, politics as theater, like the best part of it that we like. Mm-hmm. I, I, I totally agree with you. I, I think it's really interesting that, you know, the, the Lori stuff, which is, you know, Lori and Mandy are the two things through season one that everyone is sort of like, Ugh. But it is what it is. And that's not to, to, to throw shade at Moira Kelly, who is fantastic. Oh, she's Mandy wonderful. is just Mandy. But I'll, I'll just... And, and, and we'll talk about Mandy a little bit within this episode as well, because she does have a little bit of stuff to do. But I, I think it's interesting that um, it's supposed to be a Roblo vehicle, as we all know. It turns very quickly into being an ensemble with Martin Sheen sort of being at the center of it. Um, it's hard to imagine this show as a Roblo focused thing. Um, but to your point... Rob Lowe focused with the scandal and Rob Lowe who had and Rob, scandals yeah, in his, his own, own life. Thing. So it's, yeah. it's all kind of in that thing. It's very true. I'm 
I think we're all thankful that they pushed all of that aside, but it's, it is very much a part of it for sure. Yeah. I do think even the casting of Rob Lowe, I mean, it is easy to forget, but the Atlanta sex tape, like that was something that was very much in the wind. And this was perceived to be sort of his comeback vehicle after a time sort of wandering in the wilderness after that, you know, putative scandal. So it's just interesting because I think people have an impression of the West Wing that is based on the 20 years since then and the sort of Titanic stature that it has in television drama but this was not necessarily the slam dunk as you've alluded and then of course there's the thing which i think you have talked about on this podcast which is shows about politics don't work generally speaking they don't Um, yeah it's it is it is interesting to think about i mean listen there's there's all sorts of things that add to why political shows about uh, White Houses and what have you have become more commonplace, the 24-hour news cycle being obviously a, a big part of that. Um, you know, CNN, late 80s, if I'm not mistaken, is when CNN starts to come into focus. Um, obviously, Clinton wins in 92. Clinton is, you know, got a lot of scandals. He's got a lot of stuff going on. And, and the Republicans obviously want to make as much hay of that as they can. So you have all of that. You know, and then, you know, and then unfortunately you have, you have 9-11, you have all, you have all these other things, like all of this stuff starts to make politics a lot more commonplace in people's right. lives. So I think that's, and then on top of it, you have, uh, you have Scandal, you have House of Cards, you have these shows that, um, that are very much sort of tapping into that. Um, it, it is interesting though, you know, this particular show, uh, I think the reason this show is held up, or at least the reason that people still love this show is its idealism. Like, I think yeah. it's, it's, it's sort of, you know, a uh, wide eyed perspective of how the world could be and how politics could be, I think is, is comforting. I mean, I, I imagine for you it is as well. Yeah, I think it also represents an approach to character that Sorkin brings to this show. And it's something, you know, on Parenthood, Jason Kadams used to use this phrase a lot, best foot forward. Have any Friday Night Lights or Parenthood veterans mentioned that to you? Uh, Sarah Watson came on for an episode yes, and she talked a little Sarah, bit about, yeah. about the, yeah. the, um, the democratic way that, that, are, that, uh, that Kadams also ran his room in a way of, sort yeah. of making sure that, every, that, that no one knew what episode they were doing at any given right. time to create a sort of level playing field. Yeah, but he also would talk about this in terms of character, in terms of story, that everyone's trying to be their best selves. Everyone is really trying to step up to be a good wife or a good husband or a good quarterback or a good coach or a good friend. They're trying to do their best. And that really is represented in the bulk of the West Wing. There's no mustache twirling. There's no there. I mean, look, you could argue in the pilot, Mary Marsh is a pretty paper tigerish antagonist. But by and large, they try and and when the show is most successful, they succeed in humanizing the uh, the people who represent the obstacles to what our main characters are trying to achieve. Well, it's funny you bring that up too, because this is an episode, this particular episode, and, and we'll get into the specifics in a second, but it, it speaks to what you're talking about, <clears throat> which is that the Sam-centric episodes tend to be very much about Sam fights the good fight, mm-hmm. uh, tends to lose, but is always willing to get back up off the mat and fight the good fight. Um, and, and there aren't a ton of Sam-centric episodes. Obviously, the show kind of cycles through its very illustrious bench of characters. But when it does spin on to Sam, I do find that they're the most sort of um, overtly heroic and then pulling them down. Like it's, it's yeah. a lot of that sort of, um, especially with this episode, especially with the episode about his father, like there's just a lot of sort of um, taking this, this sort of, 
perfect person, right? He looks the way that, you know, he acts the way that, that we all wished we looked and spoke and kind of taking him down a notch and bringing him back down to earth, I think is a really interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, he does seem to be, Correct me if I'm wrong on this. This mm. is just my, on, at first blush. He does seem to be the character. Sam's does seem to be the member of the ensemble who is a true believer, who is least affected by the mechanisms of politics, and the one who holds on to his ideals, maybe foolishly, maybe quixotically. And we see, you know, the the heartbreaker of this episode is he never really even gets to plead his case to the president, no, and that's really sad. It's really interesting when you think about what it, when you are when you or I would devise this episode. The climactic scene would be Sam pleading his case to the president, and then the come down scene after he fails would be him going back to Bobby Zane and saying, "I'm sorry, I didn't pull it off. I feel terrible." They would have a drink. Neither of those scenes happens in this episode. Sam yeah, gets cut amazing. dead before he even enters the Oval Office, and it's- so it's very interesting. Like idealism bumps up against hard reality in this. Mm-hmm. And it's a hard reality that is his peers. It's Leo. It's the president. His peers are telling him, you can't win this one. And it's a heartbreaker I, I, for that I reason. Couldn't, could not agree with you more. It's, it's interesting because I feel like in, in doing research on this episode, and there's a fair amount of stuff that I do want to hit because there's a lot going on in this episode, and it is a very talked about episode. It's Tommy Shalami's first episode, I believe, since the pilot. Mm, yeah. um, so, and, and, and Tommy is very specific about the episodes that he does on this show. You can tell that, that they, they construct, you know, the gems for, for Tommy Shalami in a lot of ways. Um, but 11 minutes were cut out of this episode. So wow. you, you can't, which is, as you know, in, in television, that's a lot. Generally, yeah. you can go into an editing room two, three minutes over and you can, you know, do your tight, tighten scenes here and there and lose stuff. But 11 minutes means like scenes and perhaps yeah, sure. plot lines are getting pulled from the episode, which, which does make me wonder whether or not we had a scene with Sam calling Bobby and saying, I tried and I'm sorry and blah, blah, blah. Like, I feel like that scene, it begs for that scene, but I'm thrilled that it bit. doesn't have it. Do you know what I mean? I yeah, I know what you mean. Great about that. I, and, and there's this great moment when Leo tells Sam, like, he's done. Like, you're not going yeah. in the Oval Office. You're not, you're not going to get your day in court. And he says, you know, there are times when I think that we're absolutely nowhere. And, well, that's, and that's, yeah, that's it's the, show, the fulcrum right? of the whole episode is that line. And it's an off-quoted line. Uh, Rob Lowe's performance of it is just the perfect amount of understated and lost. It's really beautiful. And it is, it's the theme of the episode that you're nowhere without, and we're obviously going to talk about this as well. If you separate spirituality and conscience from the business of politics, if you actively decouple that from the mechanisms of decision making, then you often will find yourself absolutely nowhere. Yeah. I mean, that's. That is, this episode goes to very heady, spiritual, it is the head versus heart of, of yeah. sort of human nature, right? Which is this, this idea of trying to find that balance. You know, we speak of the separation of church and state, um, even though I think we can all 
blatantly say that it doesn't exist, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, as much as we would like it to. Um, it certainly doesn't in the Supreme Court. I mean, as much as we would we would like to think that religion doesn't enter the, the equation, I don't think we'd be having a lot of the debates that we do have if it was not a part of the equation. Um, I, I, I want to give a brief synopsis of the episode so we can kind of dig into the, to the various storylines. But uh, after the Supreme Court refuses to stay the ex- execution of a federal prisoner convicted of killing two drug pins, President Barr Bartlett must decide whether or not to commute his sentence in less than 48 hours. So he calls upon his childhood priest, played by Carl Malden, for guidance. Meanwhile, even Toby feels the heat over the controversial issue when he hears a sermon on capital punishment from his rabbi. Elsewhere, a hearing challenge combative campaign manager, uh, Joey Lucas, played by Marley Matlin, demands an audience with the president when her Democratic congressional candidate has purposefully been underfunded by his party before the upcoming election to unseat an incumbent. To take this Sabbath day air on February 9th, uh, 2000, story by Lawrence O'Donnell and Paul Redford. Uh, My friend. And Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> your friend, Paul Redford. Uh, and Aaron Sorkin, teleplayed by Aaron Sorkin, directed by Tommy Schlamming. 14.18 million viewers tuned into the episode, which is insane. Uh, there's, it's interesting. There's two quotes that I want to uh, read here, one from Aaron Sorkin and one from Martin Sheen. Uh, Aaron Sorkin said, see, I would disagree that this is a liberal show. Bartlett is a Democrat, but we've seen him to be very hawkish in response to military action, and he didn't commute the sentence of the first federal prisoner executed since 1963. And then Martin Sheen said, to see the most powerful man in the world get down on the floor of the Oval Office and ask yes. forgiveness for his sins. Finally, I got to do something personal. Um, mm. It's a very big deal for Martin Sheen that this that Bartlett be a Catholic. Um, right. He, he asked for the character to be Catholic. He also asked for the character to go to Notre Dame. Um, so these are the two sort of bearing walls, it feels, for Martin Sheen within this character. Um, and this episode really goes there. Um, this, this is an episode, this, I would say, of all the episodes I've watched thus far, um, is the one that makes me go, how did Martin Sheen not win the Emmy for yeah. Best Actor? Uh, this, for this, Who did? For, it's a very good question. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, I think it was um, The Practice, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was Daniel oh. German. I could right. be wrong, but now I need to now I need to look it up. See what you're doing. Okay. Now I gotta look it up. <laughs> um, give me one second. Factor okay. Emmy. Sorry. Uh, no, 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 no. We'll just we'll trim this and it'll be great and, and it'll look like I knew this all along. Um nineteen ninety-nine. It went to uh Dennis Franz for NYPD Blue. Oh. Also Is that a, the a, season that he died on the show? I don't think so i think that's huh i really don't know all okay. i know is that the nominees were dennis franz james gandolfini dylan mcdermott jimmy smith oh. sam waterston i don't even think it i don't he wasn't even nominated in 99 sorry 2000 wow. he lost to, to james gandolfini for for uh, wow how about that, that is a rogues show. gallery of phenomenal yeah, it's, it's a lot of a lot performers. of amazing talent yeah. but p- point here is and and we've talked about this a little bit on on previous episodes but it should be said that you know uh west wing and sopranos both premiere in 1999 and it's really sort of the fork in the road. It's the moment when you really see television diverging, right? You see The Sopranos breaks all new ground, changes television, and, and we're living in the Sopranos television landscape. Uh, and the West Wing is, a, is, is the past, the old guard that they're holding on to with every ounce of their being. Um, so it's interesting that 
the academy, the Emmy Academy, looking at ways to reward both of these seismic things that are happening. Uh, and Martin Sheen just seemed to kind of get the shitty end of the stick because he had mm. to go up against James Gandolfini every season. So it's just what it is. But um, he's so good in this particular episode because you really feel as though it's tapping into something very personal to, to Martin Sheen as Definitely. a human being. Um, uh, we'll talk about the last scene when we get to it, but I, I do think that it is just um, unspoken word, just wordless beauty from from Martin Sheen in terms of his acting. Um, I, I do want to sort of talk about the various things that are going on in the episode, and we'll get to the, the meaty part of obviously the, the the death penalty stuff that's at the at the center of this. Um, I want to talk just quickly about the Marley Matlin, Joey Lucas stuff, and kind of. Uh, talk about that for a second because i do think it's interesting that um i know that aaron sorkin was the fan of marley matlin i know that he wanted to figure out a way to get her on the show and and the end of the episode actually kind of has an ellipse that makes you think they're going to go somewhere else with her character right that they yes. never go which is essentially why aren't you running for office you could do this yourself um which is interesting i wish they did you know mm-hmm. I, I don't I, I don't know instead they kind of did that same head fake for sam yep right well, the Sam leaves the show on that head fake, essentially. Yeah. yeah, it's it's it is it's interesting. There's a part of me that wonders whether or not there were bigger plans for Marley Matlin's character, whether or not hmm. they had other ideas for her, or she was so good that they wanted to bring her more into the administration, and thus she becomes this pollster that they go to on numerous occasions. Well, given what we know about Sorkin's decision-making process, I would be surprised if there were any long-range planning. Uh, I think it was the kind of thing where she shows up and she scores. They had provided this sort of exit ramp for her at the end of the episode, but it quickly became clear. I mean, can I just dive in on this? Please, she is please. dynamite from the jump. Like, the moment she's on screen, it's electrifying. We have never seen a female character like this on the West Wing. We're 15, 14 episodes in. We have never seen someone go toe-to-toe with one of our leads the way that she does. And she's beautiful. She's dynamic. She's acerbic. She's deaf. She's sexy. Like, it all works. She just, the moment she takes charge of the scene, plus she's got Kenny, who's fabulous. So there's this wonderful dance between her and Kenny that just makes it so specific and interesting. You've just never seen anything like this on television, much less on the West Wing. So you hunger for more of her. Like when she, and her also, I got to say, we'll get to this maybe when we get to her. Her eyebrow work is astounding. (laughs) The way she cocks an eyebrow at Josh, just her little gestures are so profound, so delicious, so enjoyable. And after struggling with the Mandy of it all, finding someone who is a match for Josh, who can match his energy, who can be as forceful, you know, and eventually what they find in Mary Louise Parker down the line, who has a lot of the same zhuzh as Joey Lucas does, for sure. But she shows up and it's just, it's just so delicious. Uh, so you just you can't get enough of her. Yeah, she's, I mean, it, it's... It's a hell of an entrance. It's one of the best entrances of of a character on the show, uh, which is that uh, Josh goes to a bachelor party the night before, um, and Donna warns him to take it easy and to and to not overdo it. Uh, she says, you have a very sensitive system. He says, I wish you'd yes. stop telling people that. <laughs> um, and And he proceeds to get very drunk, falls asleep in his office, 
She sees him the next morning. She goes to get his clothes dry clean. Long story short, Josh is wearing Sam's sailing pants, like his yellow weather gear. His- <laughs> Which has been set up. It's phenomenal. He has the it's goofiest great. line. Sam has the goofiest line in the open. I have foul weather gear. <laughs> set up. It's such a great throwaway line, though. It's just because that's the thing about Sam, and 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 something that that Parks and Rec actually yeah, completely weaponizes. Sure. Yeah, right. Which is and and Mike Schur is is a, a very big fan of the West Wing, so it's no. There's no question that there's that. They take Sam Seaborn and all his weird little idiosyncratic things, yeah, and sure. dial it up dial to up. eleven and make him into like a cartoon character, which is wonderful. Yeah. But like stuff like that felt very much like Chris. Uh, Definitely from, from, Dev, uh, just from just odd, odd odd enthusiasms <laughs> for sure. <laughs> I will tell you something else though. I mean, you're yeah. talking about the setup of Joey's entrance. Mm-hmm. How hacky is the bit oh, of her yeah. name is Joey? It's the hackiest thing yeah. in the book. A thought pretty a girl guy. named yeah. Joey or Charlie thought it was a guy. Him, you know, Josh <laughs> with the red stripper underwear around his neck or something. It's all so hacky. It's so hacky. It's so delicious when it starts. You're in a screwball comedy. Like all of a sudden you're swept up in something and you accept the tropes because it's executed with such panache. You know, you just can't get enough of it. So you forgive all of these things. Ridiculous things that are happening. Yeah. 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 Well, it's I wanted to ask you about this because obviously, you know, you've worked in comedy for many, many years. And and generally speaking, I'm a fan of when they go broad with Josh, because it really makes him it brings him down to sort of, you know, human level a little bit because he can get sure. a little smug and he can pompous. get a little, you know, pompous yeah. and what have you. So these things make him just feel silly and it takes kind of, it, it takes the air out of him a little bit. Um, and Bradley Whitford has tremendous comedic timing, obviously, as we've... For as sure. No. So it, it, it all kind of plays really well. And this is sort of the scene in my brain that if someone said, what's the most sort of, what's the most comedic that this show ever gets, right? The most broad the show gets. It's Josh behind his desk hung over with two people screaming at him not understanding why there's two people yeah. talking at him the camera just like zo- like literally it's like very crash tight. zooms yeah. on him in this like crazy coen brothers almost esque you know camera yeah. angle and you're just like what's happening and and it's just it's great it's great and it's great yeah. because it's it's just really playful it's very well directed. You know, a lot of people talk about Shlami for his walk and talks and these yep. bravura oneers. There's a huge oneer at the start of this episode that is a mm-hmm. balletic masterpiece. <laughs> but the way he shoots the reveal yep. of Joey, Lucas, and Kenny is amazing. It's shot like a POV. You know, Bradley Whitford, Josh is blinking awake. He's, he's barely aware of what's happening. And it's these zip pans between yep. Kenny, Joey, Joey, Kenny, somebody signing at him. And it's all mm-hmm. him overwhelmed. It's beautifully constructed and funny as hell. And that's where totally Shlami, you know, I don't think he gets enough credit as a comedy director. This is a guy who really knows how to stage a scene and shoot a scene comedically. And by the way, I also want to mention mm-hmm. just the run-up to it with Donna. Donna reacting to Hungover Josh. Janelle Maloney acting like he smells like a pile of elephant shit is so good. Just her, just her, not her her repulsion at how he looks. She's playing like he is the stinkiest thing on the planet. And it just, it is just, there's such uplift and joy 
Like you're so well, she's primed. repulsed by him yes. in every possible way. She's yeah. repulsed by his smell. She's repulsed at what he might have done the night before. Definitely, just, everything yeah. about it is just she's just repulsed by him. And it's it, it's it's there's also a, and again like it is so silly. It goes so broad. But yeah. I will always laugh at him taking a big gulp of that cold coffee oh, and yeah. just letting it fall out of his mouth. <laughs> like it's just phenomenal. Like I, I just I don't know. And it's, it's but it's, it's also gold. again this is where Schlamy's so brilliant and Whitford is so brilliant at how he executes it. It's so uninflected. Like they don't yes. make a big moment out of it. No. He just he just he just <laughs> takes the sip and just spits it on himself. And they just keep going in the rhythm of the show. Screwball comedy. It it's really fantastic. is shot I, yeah, the way yeah. that those like Preston Sturgis moments are. They don't punctuate it with the shot of the drool going down his chin. It's all kind of played in the flow of a scene, and that's why it's so funny. Well, it's I've mentioned this before on previous episodes, so forgive me, but I do think that so much of it is musical, right? So much of it is melody, yes. and so much of it is just in the it's a it's a dance, it's a ballet, as you as you said earlier. Yes. And I think all of that when you when when it's all singing and it's all working, it's just it's beautiful, and it all just it, it you know clicks. Yeah. I've already sort of revealed that, that that I have a ringer in my corner for this episode because Paul Redford yeah, is a, one of my dearest friends. And I actually mm-hmm. went to breakfast with him uh, Tuesday morning in advance of talking about this. So I have a little bit of uh, insight, which insight. maybe I can salt this conversation mm-hmm. with. But I hadn't watched the episode in quite a long time. And the first thing I said to Paul when we sat down together is I said, it is such a musical. I mean... You are really aware. Obviously, it's a dramatic episode, but it feels like a perfect, like if you've ever studied like Sonata Allegro form, like the way the rigidity of symphonic structure, it's so that it's so perfectly satisfying when certain themes recur or when certain counterpoints recur. This episode felt like a guy who studied musical theater at Syracuse and went off to write dramas because it has this perfectly pitched tonality, rhythm, all the scenes are the right length, they fall in the right order. I did not know that thing about it being 11 minutes long, but it definitely does not show the strain of its creation. It feels masterful. Just like from the moment it opens, you're in the hands of master storytellers. And I'm not just talking about the writer, the director and the actors, everyone, the cinematographer, the steadicam operator, everyone is working at the peak of their game. And it is just, it is like seeing a fantastic Broadway show on opening night. It is all just singing. And I loved that so much, just the effortlessness I, I absolutely agree with you. And, and there's actually a quote from Paul that I read from uh, the Kansas City Star on October 6th, 2000, ah. where he said, uh, Paul Redford is most proud of his co-writing credit for Take the Sabbath Day, the Humanitas Prize-winning West Wing episode in which the president, Martin Sheen, has to decide whether to let an execution proceed. It was a tough issue to dramatize, he said. It was balanced. It led to a terrific episode that wasn't overly preachy about the powers of the president, which I think is really interesting. Yes. I do think that, you know, there, there's a lot of um, discourse about how much power a president should have within this episode. The, the idea yes. of how much power a person should have, um, how much power, you know, God should have. I mean, there's all of these things of just what you allow to be your, 
you know, compass, I guess. And, yes. and, and I think that that stuff is really interesting and it's, it's complicated. And yes, the show kind of puts its thumb on the scale a couple times in terms of how it really feels about the death penalty. And we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. Um, and nor do I think it's wrong for doing so, but I just think there's, it is interesting um, how nuanced this episode is considering how weighty an episode or subject matter this is. Um, so I, I, I really do hand it to, obviously, to Paul and to, to Aaron Lawrence O'Donnell, who also worked in the episode, just sort of navigating, quite frankly, a minefield of, of, a, of subject matter to, to, to create something so funny and, and yes. heartwarming and yeah. smart. Yeah, yeah and I, I think that they, there's a, there's a, like, a veteran move in this episode in terms of how the discourse is conducted that was really this is going to sound like a weird comparison but we did sometimes do episodes on will and grace that were kind of issue oriented sure. sometimes same thing on desperate housewives sometimes you know where we would attempt to sort of lean into an issue we even did a little of this on dream on which was my first job and the lesson that i learned and i think the lesson that this episode uh, illustrates in spades is that it's got to be personal that you right. can't make your characters sock puppets for points of view so everyone in this episode when they are talking about the death penalty it is somehow personal to them and that even extends to the president that moment where he says 71 percent of the american people are for the death penalty yep. that's a political problem says joey and he says i'm a politician yep. okay yep. at the core of his being is a conflict He's Catholic. He's a religious man. He's a spiritual man. You really get the sense of his struggle, and it's personal, and it's the president's personal struggle that frames this episode, right? Uh, Charlie, that amazing moment. It's one of the most beautifully realized moments in the episode. It's this crystalline little moment where the president asked Charlie, like, you know, your mother was killed by, you know. Yeah, yeah, your mother was a cop. She was killed. Cop killing is... you know, uh, rises to the level of a death penalty charge. So would you want to see that man killed? And Charlie says, no, I wouldn't want to see that. I would want to do it myself. Mm-hmm. Now, that's an often heard argument in the context of death penalty discussions. But yeah. the fact that it was set up that Charlie's mom was a cop who got killed and the fact that the president takes the time to ask, you know, it's, it's interesting. It makes it personal. It doesn't feel like he's a sock puppet for a point of view. Yeah, I mean, I would, I, I, I totally agree with that. I think that seems beautifully um, teed up as well with with Bartlett saying, "This is one of those chances where you can tell me to shut the hell up and, and yes. to not, you know." And, and really, sort of says like, "I'm going to ask you a question now, and it's it's a personal question." And then later, you have the Mandy and CJ scene as well, where CJ's like, "I right. don't, I don't particularly care whether or not Simon Cruz lives or dies. I just wish I didn't know that his mother's what his mother's name was." Right. Um, you know, it, it it all of a sudden it becomes a person. It becomes a it becomes a thing. You know, she talks about how, you know, the only reason that I care about this is because at 1204, I'm going to get a phone call from the warden who's going to tell me that he's dead and I have to be the one to go tell the president that. So it's it's to your point, it's about how this very weighty issue weighs on these people's shoulders, their personal Right, lives. and in the case you just described, it, it, even in the case of someone for whom the issue is not personal, mm-hmm. it becomes personalized. Mm-hmm. You know, Toby brings the experience of his rabbi's conversation you know, to the president. Mm -hmm. Everybody talks about and brings their personal experience and their personal take on this in a way that feels in some ways decoupled from politics. It's about their belief system and their personal experience. And so, like I said, you never feel someone is mouthing the point of view of the writer, which to me is lethal 
in contexts like this because totally. it immediately becomes agitprop. And it immediately, even when you're on the side of the person who was mouthing the platitudes that you believe in, it becomes inauthentic and phony. And yeah. I would always, I mean, we got into the weeds on this on Will and Grace quite a lot because we were a show that talked about gay issues quite a bit. Sure, we were one sure. of the few shows that could do it. Anytime we found ourselves advancing our point of view in an overt way, we always had to back away and say, what does the character think? Even if what the character thinks is wrong or self-contradictory or whatever, we have to dramatize those contradictions. Otherwise, it's going to feel phony-ish. And the audience has a finely tuned bullshit detector and they won't buy it either. Yeah, no. if it feels preachy, if it feels like they're on, a, if you're, if it feels like the character or the writer is on a soapbox and they're trying to teach you something. I mean, yeah. listen, this show is still, you know, hit with that stick constantly, right? There are people that don't feel like this show does a good job of that. I personally, obviously, and so do you think that it does, but I do think that, um, you know, there are shows that do it far, far worse that just get very, very, as you said, in the weeds and, and just start to get very, very preachy. Um, and I think that this show does the best it can, especially being a show about politics, to not seem as though it has an agenda. Um, but it, it's, you know, it's tough. It's, hard. it's, it's, especially with it, with, with an episode like this, which is so, I mean, this is also interesting too, because this show is a little bit, this episode is a little bit of an anomaly, which is that, um, generally speaking, you have a bunch of, of different storylines for a bunch of different characters. This one is too centrally focused. Yeah. Really. It's just, it's, it's, uh, it's Simon Cruz and it's, and it's Joey Lucas. Those are sort of your two and, and they dovetail yeah. a little bit. Um, so it's, it's a very kind of focused thing. Even Toby's storyline, which is really about, um, you know, how Judaism sort of, you know, uh, thinks about all of this and what its yeah. sort of feelings are on, on the death penalty. And um, it's, it's a really, so I just, we'll walk through it here. Essentially the episode opens with the Supreme court denying a stay of execution. We see Noah Emmerich playing Bobby Zane, a defense lawyer um, who had to beat up Sam in high school and has wonderful specific, <laughs> wonderful <laughs> specific that he used to beat Sam up. It's great. It's great. And he tries um, to bully when you're going to get to it, but he tries yeah, to bully yeah. Sam in their scene together. Absolutely does. He really does. I mean, that's this is the interesting thing too. You know, you, you mentioned the Bob. First of all, Bobby Zane. What a name! Uh, yeah. Bobby Zane's character is immediately set up to be um, the guy who will do anything. Right? He he just desperately needs to get uh, the attention of someone that can change what's about to happen. Um, and that Bobby doesn't come back at the end. I think to to what you were saying earlier is so much more powerful than getting right. some like buttoned up, rounded off storyline where you know Bobby just has to listen to Sam and him talk about like, well, sometimes you win them, sometimes you lose them. I don't need to see that scene. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, there's that Elmore Leonard rule, you know, leave out the part the reader tends to skip, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, sure, sure. And those are, that is a scene like, it's also something, I'm going to try and telescope a, a long yeah. conversation into a short one, but a friend of mine once had an idea for a nonfiction book she wanted to write. Mm -hmm. And through a series of circumstances, she began talking about this book uh, with friends and she made a connection to Susan Orlean. Okay. Now, when you're talking about nonfiction books, she's one of our premier nonfiction writers. Mm -hmm. The two of them had coffee together and my friend described to Susan Orlean this story that she wanted to tell. And Orlean said to her, that is an excellent story. I already know what's going to end the way it ends. I already know. So I'm not sure the book is worth writing. I'm not sure the book is worth writing because there's no surprise in it. Like, 
the story you want to tell, the characters you want to talk about, they are yep. compelling, but it ends exactly how I think it's going to end. Yep. And so that scene that you described, I mean, between that and the Elmore Leonard rule, like we don't want to see that Bobby Zane scene. Yeah. What new thing is going to happen in that scene that's going to surprise you? Yeah. What Especially is going to be- since, I, we, to your point earlier, we want to leave Sam in walking out of that scene with Leo. We don't need to see yes. him yeah. come to grips with that scene. Like I want to leave scene, I want to leave that scene with Sam hot, right? With Sam right. frustrated by the situation, not having come to grips with it. No, I believe that sometimes we are absolutely nowhere is his last words in the episode. I believe it. And you want that. I mean, again, it's the, it's the musicality. Like that line rings out for the final 10 minutes of the episode. Mm -hmm. It even to me kind of beautifully chimes with the president staring out the window, like at a loss. Mm -hmm. He's nowhere. He doesn't know. He, he understands that he cannot take action. And he is in this horrible purgatory where part of him yearns to take action and part of him understands that he can't. You know, you know it's, and it's, if you had that, yeah, go ahead. I was just, I was just going to say that, you know, I, I, I agree. And I, I feel like that scene with Leo and Sam is a great scene on a bunch of levels. It's a great scene because it starts from a place of Leo just trying to kind of let, let Sam uh, off easy a little bit, right? And just yeah. be like, listen. We, we tried, right? But then Sam won't let it go. And then Leo gets pissy and says, like, you fucked this up. This was bungled from the beginning. And then Sam's like, what do you mean? What could we have done differently? There wasn't anything that we could have done differently. And then Leo has no response to that. And that's when Sam's like, yeah, we're fucking nowhere. Like, it's just, yeah. you can try to get angry at me if you want. But, like, ultimately, it's just a really interesting scene because you don't generally see those two get hot at each other that much. Right. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's interesting. It's just, it's, it's Leo and him just being like, man, we just, we're, we, there's nothing we can do. Well, if, I mean, I don't know if this is a persistent theme in the West Wing or if it's just a theme that struck me in watching this particular episode a mm -hmm. few times over the last week, but the limits of power and the limits of what you can accomplish ring through both stories in this episode. Obviously, it is very present and very powerful and very compelling in this death penalty storyline. But even in the Joey Lucas storyline where the stakes are lower, okay, she comes there with an agenda and an agenda that she believes in her heart, maybe not as we learn deep in her heart, but an agenda that she believes is right, which is we need a better candidate in that seat. Okay. And ultimately she learns that there are limits to what she can accomplish, no matter how passionate she is, no matter how successful she is at reaching out to the right people. She gets to the highest guy on the totem pole and he shoots her down and he yeah. says, you know what? No, no, get a real sure. candidate, yeah, get a real, get a real candidate, candidate. Yeah. you know? And so she learns about the limits of what she can accomplish. It doesn't matter how much of a true believer you are at a certain point. There are limits to what you can accomplish. And I guess, like I said, this is a theme we often see revisited in the West Wing, okay? Mm -hmm. That there are already always inbuilt limits. Yeah. But this episode, I think one of the things that unites what seem to be two very disparate sorts of storylines is that idea. You know, I, I I agree. And I think, you know, as you were talking, I'm think I was thinking about the scene with Joey and and the president. Um, and this episode really shows kind of a bunch of different layers of Bartlett's character in, a, in very interesting ways. And I think that, that Martin Sheen does all of those really beautifully. But one of the things that I think is interesting is um, he kind of comes across as a bit of a hard ass with her. Like yeah. he sits down with her. He has a real conversation where he wants to hear what she 
thinks he should do about the Simon Cruz situation. They have a real conversation back and forth about that she's not pro death penalty and she doesn't, she thinks that he should stay the execution. And he says, but 71% of the country believes that death penalty is real. And she's, you know, they have their whole thing. And then she stands up and se- tries to seize her moment with the most powerful man in the nation and says, help me with my candidate. And he fucking turns on her yeah. and like, like just cuts her down to size says like in a way that's just very unbartlett. Bartlett generally speaking, doesn't get that way. And I was like, that's interesting that I, he gets sharp yeah. like that. Sorry. Yeah. He does. He, he, it's with such, you know, it's interesting. It reminds me of one of my favorite movies, All the President's Men. Sure. It's a very Jason Robards in All the President's yes. Men yes, kind yes, of yes. moment. You know, it reminds me so much. You remember when Jason Robards reads the first draft of the story and says, you don't have you it. don't have it. Yeah. <laughs> Get some better facts next time. You know, well, we haven't had any luck. Get some. Yeah. Yeah. Even the last... I mean, his last speech in the whole movie, which is to me one of the best moments in American cinema, where he says, you know, nothing's riding on this except the First Amendment to the Constitution, (laughs) the future of the country. But you guys fuck up again and I'm going to get mad. And he throws it away. He throws it away. And so you're right. It is super harsh the way that Bartlett talks to her, but it is thrown away in this way that shows you there's no malice in it. He's just delivering the news. It's like the simple fact is you don't have the horses. This candidate is an empty shirt. Okay, and we need him where he is right now, you know, and so and he's got to get on with the business of the presidency. He doesn't have any time to kind of sugarcoat it. He knows she's a pro, you know, but like he's got bigger things weighing on his mind. And so I kind of admire in a way it seems very presidential that he's like next. Let's get to the what's next of it all. For sure, for sure, and and it's not to say that I that it, it didn't make me like like I didn't dislike Bartlett in the scene. It just showed an edge to him yes. that we don't generally see. And then coupled with a moment later in the episode when he's talking with Leo about whether or not he's going to pardon him, and then he just shakes his head, signaling I'm not doing it. And it is cold as fuck. Like yes. it is a it's it's almost a Tony Soprano moment of like. I know that by doing this, I'm killing a person. Like this right. is this is a death sentence that I'm that I'm sending out right now. So much so that that later, when you see him talking to his priest, you can see him grappling with this moment in time when he just shook his head and a man died. And it's yeah. just it's 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 really yeah, it's a really complex episode I, I, when it comes to what Bartlett's I, you know wrestling with in this episode. That's what it is, and I think that's why you're so right to talk about how masterful Sheen is in this episode yeah. because this is an episode where he is grappling with mighty conflict yeah. and mighty forces within him, but he doesn't play it in a Shakespearean kind of you know King Lear. You know the storm is raging around. He doesn't play it that way at all. We don't re- we don't see him you know punch the wall. A lot of guys would punch the wall. A lot of actors would indicate they would grind their teeth. They would snap a pencil. They would, you know, you'd see their knuckles white on the edge of the desk. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of actors who would do that. And she doesn't do it. And he saves his moment of weakness. He does not show weakness until the final frame. And it really isn't even weakness. What it is is surrender because it's powerlessness. He is basically saying, I'm a sinner. I was weak. I didn't do what I knew was right because I felt I couldn't. I'm nowhere. And so he asks God for forgiveness because he's a we he's a mortal. He's weak. You know? It's I, and, I yeah, it's so true. It's it's beautiful too to think about, you know, 
he has these various scenes with various people throughout this episode, right? And with each of these people, you can see him desperate for a life raft. Give me the, yes. give me the answer. Give me the thing I can do that can give me the political cover to be able to do what I know is right. And none of them can do that because fundamentally it's meaningless if it's, if it's behind the cover of, of politics, right? Like right. you either go with your, with, with what you believe in and your faith or, or just what you think is the right thing to do as a human being on this planet, uh, or you don't. And he didn't. <laughs> and it's just, yeah. that's, that's and, nice to live and with that's, that. Yeah, and that is why it's so interesting that he rejects having a yeah. scene with Sam. I think yeah. it's so interesting that, the, that yeah. he will not let the true believer into his office. And what that says to me is, if I have five minutes with that guy, I might fold. I might fold, yeah. And I'm not going to let myself yeah. fold because I know it's the yeah. wrong thing to do. I know it's the wrong, capital W, wrong thing to do. And so I cannot even let this man that I love and respect into my office to plead his case because he might tip me over and I can't let that happen. So, yes, he plays it with an edge. And yes, it seems super harsh when he does it. But you ultimately come to understand that, like, this is a guy who's – He's at 99 and he will not go to 100. It's just beautiful. It's, be- it's I mean, beautiful. It's, 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 it's interesting very sophisticated. Too. It's incredibly sophisticated. And I, I would say, too, what's interesting as well is the scene with Leo that he has. Leo doesn't push him in one direction or the other. Leo right. never really does that, quite honestly. Leo's, yeah. can, you know, whose uh, job it is to push the president in the series. Sure, sure. But like, yeah. it's amazing to me to watch their scenes together are always really great because it's really sort of, you know, the devil and the and the angel and really kind of seeing yeah. these two people battle it out but i also just feel like in this particular situation leo's choice is to be switzerland and to be like yeah. you have to make this decision i'm not going to push you in one direction or the other but if you're looking for excuses i'm not giving you those either i mean he even says to him like well you know think about the next guy think about the next guy and he's like that's the next guy's problem. Like you yeah. got to make this decision for who you are right now. Yeah. He does give him that tiny little exit ramp. You know, he does say to him, you could do something contradictory. It's not in your nature, but you could do it. You could absolutely do it and let it be the next guy's problem. And I always wonder, and again, I've watched the episode now half a dozen times. <laughs> does Leo know when he says that, that there's no way Jed would ever do that? Probably. I mean, Kinda. I think Leo knows him probably better than anybody does. Yeah. And, I, and I, I do get the impression that, I mean, it's said at the beginning of the episode. Toby says to Sam, Bartlett's never going to pardon this guy. Right. Like, it's right out of the gate. They basically say to you, give up all hope. Don't think for a but you can't not do it. You spend the rest of the episode thinking, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe he will. I mean, he's really fighting, you know, the, the wrestling with these demons. Maybe he will, but Toby was right. Well, it's also that we as viewers, and this is where, again, the episode is so beautifully, it's a beautifully told story. Our instincts as audience members is to yearn for the deliverance. That's what we yearn for, right? So we go into this episode hoping for deliverance. If you were to tell me at the beginning of this episode what the ending is, I still wouldn't believe you because we are taught to believe because of the rules of drama that in the 41st minute of this 42-minute episode, Bartlett is going to have a literal come-to-Jesus moment. I mean, a priest (laughs) even walks in. (laughs) And it doesn't happen. And it It is so interesting, like, as the moment of midnight is creeping up, as the viewer, you're like, well, I mean, now it's, I mean, there's obviously gonna, and it doesn't happen. This is a very, this is just a wildly contradictory reference, but just bear with me for a second. 
for the hundredth episode of Will and Grace, we decided to get Grace married. Mm-hmm. We were going to have her marry Harry Connick's character. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, this was obviously a very big move in the history of the show. And so we were very anxious to keep it under wraps and to not have any pictures out there of like Grace in her wedding dress or anything. We went to militaristic extremes to make sure that didn't happen. Word got out once the one out one liner went out of the plot summary for the hundredth episode, Grace gets married. Every TV yeah. critic in the country wrote an article saying, Grace is never getting married. Grace is never going to get married. The show is called Willie Grant. How are you going to do Willie Grant? How are you going to do Right. Everyone said this is a classic, you know, sitcom jerk around where Will is going to make some, you know, he's going to be in tears at the altar and Grace isn't going to go through with it. And so I called NBC publicity and I said, release the hounds. Put out the picture of her in the wedding dress because the audience was so primed for the reversal that by not giving it to them, the show became unbelievably dramatic. Like delivering Grace at the altar turned out to be what we promised we would deliver turned out to be mind-blowingly dramatic. And this episode sort of has that. The actual moment where, you know, where Bartlett surrenders is so dramatic because we have been promised by centuries of drama that your main character never surrenders. It's it's so funny you say that because it does... You know, drama by nature is is a is a build up towards catharsis in some way or another, yes. right? A, a release of some sort. Um, usually, that's with the happy ending. Generally yes. speaking, right? The catharsis of this episode is is a, a resignation, as you said, a moment of Bartlett, you know, on his knees in the Oval Office, begging begging God for forgiveness, and and that is not the catharsis that you think you are setting up right. at all. Um, it, it's, and, and I'll also say too, you know, this episode opens uh, with one of my favorite cold opens or my favorite types mm. of cold opens that this show does, which is Sam's in his office. He's going on a sailing trip. He's telling his assistant that he's not taking his cell phone or his beeper with him. He's leaving everything. He turns off the light to his office. He leaves his phone rings, stops, turns around, picks up the phone, Sam Seaborn theme song comes oh, in goosebumps every time. And you're just yeah. like, this is this is heroic shit. Yeah. He's going to save this man's life. Exactly. And we then by the end, for, yeah. we're nowhere. Yeah. yeah. But again, it's Great. musical. We are even yeah. set up by music to believe. Yeah. Sam to the rescue. Yeah. Sam to the rescue, yeah. Toby to the rescue, Joey to the rescue, yeah. Charlie to the rescue. Everyone. All of these rest. It's exactly the parable that the priest tends tells at the Which end. Is, I mean, the, the, well, yeah, we'll talk about the last scene yeah. in a bit, but I, but I, I think it's interesting too. You know, you have a scene in the middle of the episode where um, Sam and Mandy and Toby and Josh are yes. talking about precedent, are talking about what pres what presidents have you know, uh, commuted sentences, this, that, and whatever. The last time it happened was in 63. The last president to do it, to actually commute a sentence, was Lincoln. And Mandy says, Abraham? And then Josh says, no, Bert Lincoln. What are you talking about, Mandy? <laughs> like, it, it's it's a great scene, but it's also, I mean, <laughs> Josh is hungover and pissed off and this, that, and whatever. But it's the frustration, that's when it starts 
to crystallize. It's yes. in that scene where you see Sam holding textbooks, trying to find something. They're all searching for an answer. They're searching for something. And, and you can see it slipping through their fingers a little bit. Toby's, yes. you know, Toby doesn't understand how his rabbi knew. Like there's all these, and we'll get to the rabbi stuff, but it's just, I just think it's really interesting to see how it starts with the, like it's just Sam to the rescue. And then in less than 10 minutes, you're already starting to sense that the wheels are coming off the wagon. And it's Absolutely. And then, uh, by the way, you know, in watching it again, I mean, that Lincoln joke is so dumb, <laughs> but somehow <laughs> funny. The last shot of that act has a painting of Lincoln in it. Oh, that's great. great. It's really great. After Joey Lucas leaves the office, after talking to the president, the last shot as she walks by, Shlami knows what he's doing. He's got that picture, the painting of Lincoln, which he's actually set up earlier in the episode. He's just reminded you. He's kind of put a little tickle back in the episode of the Lincoln of it all. It's masterful. It's it's fantastic. I I, I think it's worth saying that... um, the episode is called Take This Sabbath Day because, and this was news to me, uh, or at least the first time I watched this episode, um, there are no executions during the Sabbath. Right. Um, bizarre, if you ask yes. me. Like the, the, the lines in the sand that are drawn where it's like this, we can't cross this uh, one. You're like, but okay. Like, I, I mean, it's just sure. Um, it is pretty crazy. Uh, I, I think that it's worth talking about the, the um, I want to talk about the rabbi stuff for a second. So Toby goes to, uh, goes to Shul and he gets a phone call from Sam who says, uh, is your rabbi giving a sermon on capital punishment? <laughs> to which Toby says, yes. And how did you know that? Um, it's, Basically, long story short, it's Bobby went to called the rabbi and was hoping that by giving a sermon he could flip Toby and get Toby on his side. Which, by the way, Toby was already there. It wasn't as though also, he needed to do much. Bananas! Why didn't you it just say bananas. to the rabbi, "Why don't you maybe buttonhole Toby after the service?" Yeah. It's completely bananas. It's crazy. It's crazy. I mean, I like it. I like but it, crazy. but it's really Byzantine, especially yes. given the urgency. Well, Especially this, is, this is, yes, Sorkin <laughs> has his has his tendencies to have yes. plot things just sort of coincidentally happen because he wants them to or thematically they speak yeah. to what he wants to, which is fine. I'm not, not dogging him for it. But I, I do think that um, the, the, the Toby rabbi scenes are, there's two of them. And, and I mean, there's really just one where he's uh, <laughs> where he's at shul, and then there's one later when he goes to talk to his rabbi. And the rabbi talks about how vengeance is not Jewish. He says it several times in the sermon: mm-hmm. vengeance, vengeance is not Jewish. And then later, when Toby goes back to talk to him, um, he basically the rabbi is trying to convince him that he should go talk to Bartlett about why he shouldn't do this thing. And the, the rabbi says something, he says, government has the right to punish, but not the right to be vengeful. And I think that that's a really interesting thing. You know, I, I the, the idea of vengeance, the idea of, of um, using power to, to get to even the, the scales on that level is is upsetting and and obviously it happens i mean it happens all the time um but i but i do think that it's a really interesting thing to hear from a rabbi and then and then you have this really nice button during this scene there's a there's a woman who is practicing a cantor who's practicing her song and at the end toby's like i think you put her up there i think she's a plant and basically the rabbi says she's my communication director yeah i and 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 i think that i mean that that's the stuff this show doesn't go to Judaism that often. Um, 
which I think is interesting. I think that 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 Sorkin picks and cho- you know chooses his moments. Yeah. Um, but when he does, I find it incredibly powerful. I mean, season four, you have a really amazing episode with Toby's father, Holy yeah, Adam, and it's yeah. all about his father being in in um, um, Murder Incorporated. Yeah, that's all the that flashback, kind of right? Yeah, yeah. Um, just really interesting stuff. The way that that Sorkin kind of weaponizes Judaism within this show is very specific and very kind of laser focused in in a way that is surprising, I guess. Yeah, and I wonder if I mean. <sighs> I know we've you've talked about the the Richard Schiff versus Eugene Levy of it all. Yes, I, sure. I, uh, which, sure. And I love the idea of Eugene Levy in this part. Sure, by the way. same. Um, but I wonder if because there is something, sure. yeah. But there is something. I mean, I guess they're both somewhat rabbinical. But there is something <laughs> yes. somewhat rabbinical about Toby, and I wonder if he sort of leaned into that a bit because of the way Richard Schiff presents himself. You know, he definitely has that kind of you know, learned, studied, thoughtful, you know, Talmudic scholar about him. And I like that it gives Andre to talk about Jewish themes. I mean, again, to talk Will and Grace for a minute. Grace's wedding was the only Jewish wedding ever shown on American television. Isn't wow. that amazing? That's the only crazy. Jewish wedding in the history really? of broadcast television. Yes. Even That's Bridget Loves crazy. Bernie, even that was an interfaith wedding. I didn't know this until after it aired. So it is <laughs> rare to see, considering how many Jews. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Overt discussions yeah. of... Jewish heritage, Jewish themes, Jewish beliefs, to have a scene in a temple with a rabbi who's not a cartoon. These are surprising. And it was nice to see it treated with the same sort of dignity that we treat the priest. You know, he's a guy who studied, who, you know, who has strong religious beliefs and congregants that he's trying Mm -hmm. to service and understand and help. And it's nice to hear this point of view. You know, I I agree. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I I think it's interesting that, that, that he that they cast an actor who played a hitman on the Sopranos, yeah, on the Sopranos, I know. Um, as a rabbi. Yeah, I do think that that in some weird metatextual way, it feels almost like that that was intentional. He's a great actor, mm. obviously, and as and he should have got the role no matter what. But I do think that there's something there. I do love just the Venn diagram of these two shows converging uh, in this yes. way. But yeah. there is just something very interesting about his performance. Um, it it it's. It's a very sort of um, 
It's very grounded. He feels like a real person. Uh, yeah. I, I would say the same thing about the priest, and we'll get to Carl uh, Warden's or Malden. Malden's uh, yeah. fantastic performance and his last performance uh, before right. he passed away. Um, it's just very interesting to see uh, how it's perceived. Like, there's a moment when, and I'll just when the priest shows up, uh, priest Kavanaugh. We'll just call him the priest. Uh, he said. It says, he sent you a priest, a rabbi, and a Quaker. What do you want from him? And there's something very interesting about the way that those are all kind of sent to, to Jed and that he's dismissive of all of them because they won't give him exactly what he's looking for. It's, it's really, I mean, we'll talk about the parable within the, the priest's scene uh, in a sec, but I just think that it's just, it's just very interesting the way that Sorkin deals with religion religion yeah. within all of his work um is is bordering on mysticism like it, it it doesn't it's not sort of i don't even know how religious aaron sorkin is i don't know how he feels about god in general but this episode really goes out of its way to be a sort of all-encompassing to as many different types of faith as possible it seems um in a way that i found really interesting very comforting yeah i i I gotta say i mean i definitely i like what you're saying about the the two men of the cloth that we see Mm -hmm. in this episode and the parallels and differences between them i think it's interesting Mm -hmm. that we see the rabbi in a shul in you know in a talis in a yarmulke and he's sort of in his element there's even a cantor singing behind him we see him in a religious circumstance but he seems approachable he's got strength Mm -hmm. he definitely has strength but this is a guy who also, you know, can sit down and have a conversation with you. He can make a joke with you. And similarly, our priest, whose name is inexplicably Tom Cavanaugh, um, yet it isn't played by Tom Cavanaugh. Um, uh, same kind of thing, except his context is the Oval Office and he's awestruck by it. Yeah. He's a man who spends his time in houses of God. But when he finds himself in a house of government, he's he's awed by it, which I think yes. is really interesting. You know, one of the reasons, and I mean, you know this because this was part of our initial conversation about this episode. I really discovered something interesting when I was writing on Desperate Housewives. I was on that show, th- two, three-year tours of duty on that show, separated by one year on Parenthood. I had a Jewish upbringing. I had a bar mitzvah, the whole nine yards. But I think like a lot of Jews out in the public sphere, particularly in the entertainment industry, we struggle with how much we believe the dogma. Um, We culturally identify as Jewish, but we maybe go to high holy days or maybe we circumcise Mm -hmm. our kids, but it kind of stops at the Uh waterline. I found that writing about faith was something that I really gravitated to on that show. And I don't know entirely why, but I did write a lot of stories and scenes, which were particularly about Marsha Cross's character, Brie, who was an intensely religious woman, struggling with a life that dealt her one bad card after another and and really grappling with whether God had a plan for her. And it didn't shake her belief, but it did make her pray a lot. And it did make her go to church and consult with Dakin Matthew, who played our priest, uh, who's amazing. And I loved writing those scenes. And Matt Berry, who wrote on the show with me, actually went to divinity school. In addition to being a stand-up comic, also went to divinity school. We had some really good conversations in the housewives room about the role of faith in the show. And it was something that Mark actively urged us to talk about and invoke. Not that the show ever had an agenda to 
to you know advance a particular view about religion, plus or minus. But writing about characters of faith, we just don't do it all that much, you and me. We just don't do it. TV writers yeah. don't write about it unless it's a show that's about faith. You know, unless or it's a lesson yeah. to show where religious observance eat something like The Handmaid's Tale, where religion is baked into the show. Mm-hmm. What we don't or see if the so showrunner if the showrunner comes from a religious background or some sort. Yes. I, mean, I feel like religion played prominently in the first season or two of Six Feet Under. It feels like Alan Ball yeah. had religion in his life uh, when he was growing up. But yes, you were saying. Yeah, and or Big Love, you know, right? Yes, 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 kind of yes sure, sure, sure. Yeah. So, but but it's interesting to me to see a show where we learn that Toby goes to shul. I think this is the first time we've seen him in shul. As a matter of fact, the president says to Leo, Toby, was, Toby went to shul, which I found so dear because he doesn't say Toby went to temple or Toby went to the synagogue. He says Toby went to shul, which means he knows enough about Toby to know what it's called, yeah. which I love. And Toby but, just goes, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but isn't it wonderful? It's great. The show is not about religion. It's just about some people who happen to be religious and for whom religion is important. And I think... I mean, I'm just going to be honest about this. I think a lot of TV writers are not religiously observant. That's a huge generalization. But based on the writers' rooms I've been in, they're not. And so those themes don't often find themselves, they don't often find their ways into, they don't often find their way into our writing. And I like that Sorkin will go there. I like it. And as you said, we have no idea what the state of his religious observance is. But but I like that this show can go there. Obviously, Two cathedrals, I mean, is the most operatic example of religion being invoked to the nth degree on the West Wing. But uh, I like that it's in the show. And as I said, it's something that I liked about Desperate Housewives. We would go to a church set and stuff would happen in church. It wasn't just a place to, for people to meet and you know swap pasta salads. It was also a place people went to pray and seek guidance and seek wholeness. And I liked writing those scenes. Anyway. I think that I think that's I think that's all fascinating, and I, I would also say too that I feel like when religion is used, I feel like generally speaking, it's used um, in, in sort of a grandiose way. There's something very theatrical. There's something yeah. there's magic realism yeah. baked into religion. It gives you a freedom as a writer to kind of almost dip into the supernatural, right? Like it allows you to kind of think outside the box and say, well, religion gives, gives me the freedom to be able to do X, Y, and Z. And I think that, um, that's why someone like Sorkin, who is obviously a very, very theatrical writer, I think that whenever he goes there, I feel like it's for those means to be able to talk about something grander. I mean, yeah. there's nothing bigger than talking about God and life faith, and death, life yeah. and death. Right. So, I mean, this is just a very big episode. It's dealing with big, heady themes and it's, um, it's very emotional. Um, but it's also intellectualizing something that's hard to intellectualize i mean yeah. you can you can sit down and try to crunch the numbers all you want it's it's good and evil really like it's just within yeah. yourself what do you think is good and what do you think is not i mean the the final scene of this episode which is a tremendous scene and one for the books uh with carl malden who's a tremendous actor who's an old friend of martin sheen's who he asked to do the episode for i mean yeah malden had retired acted. yeah he basically was like sure okay I'll, I'll do the i'll do one day for you in the oval office um uses the same bible that he used in on the waterfront which is just the greatest the greatest thing you can ask for um it's a beautiful scene these are obviously two acting partners who are very close and there's just a there's an immediate camaraderie that you feel between these two people which is 
necessary for this scene to really work is to feel that they have decades of life history. That they've spent yeah. in history together. Um, you know, there's a wonderful moment when the priest says, I don't know how to talk to you. Like, am I supposed oh, to call you so Jed good. or do I call you Mr. President? And, and Bartlett gives this beautiful explanation of saying, I, I, I'd like you to call me Mr. President because when I'm in this room, I have to make decisions about life and death. And it's just easier for me to think of it as a job and not the man. And he's like, great. Um, it's, but there's a, there's a back and forth between them that's really lovely because you get the sense that Jed was a little kid in this man's company. Um, you know, he's just in his parish. It's just, it's, yeah. it's a really, um, it makes the, it, it makes the scene, right? Like you could see yeah. the shitty version of this scene. And, yeah. You know. Yeah. And you know, the wonderful counterweight to what you just quoted about like, I need to be the office and not the man is yeah. that after the moment has passed and we see, kind of Bartlett kind of broken by like what has occurred. He says, Jed, Jed. would you like me to hear your confession? I mean, it's just perfect. Perfect. You're primed for it. And yet it's perfect when it happens. And it's interesting because again, the hat, there's a hacky way to do this episode. Okay. The hacky way (laughs) to do this episode is you would have, you would have a round table of characters who all have strong opinions about the, about the death penalty and can cite chapter and verse of certain Supreme Court decisions and so forth. And somebody who had a family member who was killed and stuff, the hacky version of the Charlie scene. There's, and the hacky version would be that there's one guy around the table who's religious Mm -hmm. and he's advancing the religious point of view. That's the hacky version. Interestingly, of course, as we've talked about, many of the characters in our core ensemble are are people of faith. Mm-hmm. The other thing I find so interesting about the way this episode ultimately comes to a conclusion is that the priest enters and it's already falling action. Like the moment has passed. It's the gone. decision has been made. Yep. Remember, he calls for his priest in like 10 minutes into the episode. Yeah. And he doesn't show up until... 38 minutes into the episode. Like how long did it take him that long to get there from New Hampshire? But it's so interesting that he gets there after the decision has been made because instead of making it a scene about, it's a scene that surprises us, right? Because it's not a scene about advice and a decision. It's a scene about admitting weakness and seeking forgiveness, which is not the scene we've been primed for. It's not the scene we've been told to expect by that swelling music in the opening. The last thing we expect is a scene about defeat. Again, I go to All the President's Men. All the President's Men is beautiful because the climax of the scene is the guys fail. Yep. The climax of the story is the guys fail. They get out ahead of them, get out ahead of their skis, and they print a story that they can't back up. And as a result, it's a huge setback. Why did they do that? Because we know what happened with Watergate. <laughs> it's more dramatic. We know yeah. Woodward and Bernstein won. So to we create see it in a drama, postscript. We see it just we, literally yes. like typed on a fucking typewriter. So to create genuine drama, you need to <sighs> invert the audience expectation. And in this, he does such a beautiful job, Sorkin does, of inverting our dramatic expectations by giving us yeah. a climactic scene where the principal emotion is, I failed. What do I do? with the fact that I'm weak and I can't be the person I want to be. And of course, this is a theme that winds through Jed Bartlett's entire presidency yep. is his, the conflict between his ideals, his morals, his religious faith and the realities of politics. And he's never brave enough. He's never brave enough for himself or for the people around him. He disappoints himself and the people around him constantly. And 
it's I mean, it's such a beautifully broken portrayal of of political theater because we want our politicians to be heroes, but they can't always win and they can't always accomplish everything they want to. You know, it's it's interesting you say that because I've I've first of all, I've, I've obviously loved doing these podcasts and diving into this show. I haven't watched the first season in a really long time. And, and you really get a sense in the first 10 episodes or so of a show finding itself. You've been yes. on first year shows. You know how that goes. Um, but also figuring out Bartlett. And you really start to get a sense. You've got In Excelsius Deo, um, which is the, the, the last episode of 99, which is the Christmas episode. Yeah. And it's the one where Toby helps the veteran, the, the veteran who Amazing. died. Get a, it's yeah. great, right? Um, but the end of that episode is Toby being like, we should be doing this for everyone. And it's your failure as a president that we're not. And you sense that Bartlett kind of, that lands on him. And then he kind of goes off and does whatever he's doing. And then you have the State of the Union episode where we find out about his MS. We find out about right. all the stuff that he's been hiding. You know, we have the scene with Leo where he's like, I just, I wanted to be president. You really start to get the sense that they're getting under the hood of this character and they're seeing all the flaws in him. And 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 this sort of, this pedestal he's put himself on this ideal version of himself that he can never be and and when you think of this show as you know as a show about jed bartlett coming to grips with his failures and 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 his relationship with his father and and any numbers relationship with god all of these things he's an unbelievably complicated character who's constantly struggling with this stuff um I just don't think people see the show through that lens for whatever reason. I think it's unfortunate because I think it's a much more complex show than people give it credit to. Yeah, and I think it speaks to, I know this is something that you've talked about on this podcast quite a bit, is the way that Sorkin builds characters. Mm-hmm. And and I, I'm not trying to sound self-complimentary when I say I don't give much thought to characters' backstories either. I don't really like all of that work. I never studied writing, which is maybe why I don't care about that stuff. I think it's interesting sometimes to reflect upon somebody's childhood or parentage or broken first marriage or whatever. But I kind of like to proceed the same way Sorkin does and work it out in the laboratory of the show. You know, it was season two of Will and Grace. I had heard Max Muchnick talk about this relationship he had had with this woman, Janet, who was sort of his grace and how they had dated for a while and so forth. And that, you know, that that was what ultimately kind of pushed him to realize like his actual nature, you know, we had not, but that was not part of the text of Will and Grace that Will and Grace Mm -hmm. had ever dated. And I had had a conversation with, um, Bill Walker, who was one of the other writers on the show, and I that that spurred me to come in one day and say, we should do an episode where it's 1985. Will and Grace are, are sophomores at, uh, I think it was Columbia, and they've been dating for six weeks. Mm-hmm. And this created a sensation in the room because we had never talked about this right, right. as the backstory between Will and Grace. And we actually didn't do the episode for another like two years. We couldn't crack it. Right. But all of a sudden, that became a reference point that they had dated in the past and that what happened as a result of their abortive attempt to be a couple sort of that influenced the will and grace of today. I love that that was something that wasn't in the DNA of the show until we invented it. And this has happened on every series that I've been on, that you Mm -hmm. discover things. You discover things that your actors can do. Monica being a super competitive neat freak 
came out of a freakish, like last minute diving grab, 2 a.m. rewrite that turned out to be one of her defining character moments. It became her character. And that to me is the most exciting thing about making television Mm -hmm. is working it out in the laboratory of the show. And I think sometimes showrunners become hidebound by their conception of a character going in. Like, oh, I saw this as a guy who's always right. Or I saw this as a guy who's, or I saw this as a woman who's everybody's mom, you know, who right. takes care of everyone around her. So, and if you have that conception and you can't relax your grip on the wheel enough to know which way the vehicle wants to go, you end up with really frustrated writers, actors. <laughs> you end up with an sure. unsuccessful show. Sure. And so I love what you're talking about, about the way that Bartlett's character was built out. Mm-hmm. Over this first dozen episodes and then eventually over, you know, the life of the West Wing for as long as he was on the show. You know, I, I agree with you. I, I think there's some there's a happy medium between these two things, because I do think that uh, that shackling yourself to a preconceived notion of what the character was when you pitched it to a network and they bought it uh, is is not good. Uh, I would also say the fly by the seat of your pants method could also lead to, I don't know drug addiction and making a television show that's impossible to make. So like sure. there's there is <laughs> there are problems that come with this idea of I mean this show is notoriously difficult to make. Sure. Scenes being given to writers 5 minutes before they're shot. I mean like just crazy stuff. And again, this is not to suggest that everyone isn't incredibly talented that did it. They did it. More power to them. They gave us four seasons of television that are unbelievable and, you know, then three more seasons that are very, very good. I just think it's, it's one of those things where, um, there's something in between that, right? Yeah, I think, I yeah. think you just have to make sure that you're flexible enough to go along with. Yeah. I, I mean, I think some of the, 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 challenges that you're talking about speak to Aaron Sorkin's peculiar process and <laughs> sure, the fact sure, that's that what kind of, that's what that, I mean his process and everything kind of having to go through his typewriter I mean I know you've discussed this on the show mm-hmm. the way in which mm-hmm. the sausage got made on the show was really peculiar the way in which the sausage got made on Desperate Housewives was peculiar we always delivered late and the way in which mm-hmm. the process needed to be devised to enable Mark Cherry to be sort of astride the whole show mm-hmm. that was challenging too you sure. know every show has a different process but I'm talking about like the ability of writers to spot incipient trends and incipient qualities in their actors and pick up on them um, is great. And to see something in a scene that surprises you, a dynamic between two characters where all of a sudden go, oh, it might be, the answer might be over there. You know, famously, when Friends was devised, the romantic comedy couple was Monica and Joey. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the script, Monica's the good girl. She's everybody's mom. She's a sweetheart. She maybe makes bad choices in men, but she, she's a good girl. Across this, the hall is this bad boy actor who's a bit of a player. He's a little too sharp for his own good. That's how you devise a romantic comedy. But during no, the sure. making of, yeah, crazy. To but think during of the making of the Friends pilot, I mean, I was there for it. During the making of the Friends pilot, the moment David and Jennifer were in a scene together, we're like, oh no, I think the show is over there. And if you look at the pilot of Friends, Ross and Rachel have virtually nothing in the pilot. But we spotted something and we built in that direction. And Monica and Joey became this weird sort of like it never got off the launch pad. All sorts it of did other become interesting a callback things. later when they did the flashback to when Joey did become yes. roommate yes. and she was like clearly super into him in that in that that's right yeah but it was almost an acknowledgement of like the road not taken because that was so clearly something that was never going to start you know so the secret to me about 
you know, long running shows is that ability to adapt and change. Oh, for sure, for sure. And, you know, I really wish we had not shut down Desperate Housewives. I really wish we had brought new characters onto that street mm-hmm. and kept building and changing and growing mm-hmm. our ensemble. You know, I kept saying to Mark, isn't this guiding light? Isn't this show going to be on for 50 years? Well, and the title um, is is flexible enough that it could have been exactly. anybody. I mean, it doesn't, yeah. it doesn't, yeah. It's interesting. You know, I, I think that I, first of all, just to be clear, I very much agree with you that a, that a television show is an organism that you have to allow to change and you have to be able to, you, you need to be able to go along with whatever it's going to become. And if you fight that, you're doing it at your own peril. I completely agree with you. I think that it is a it's a it's a chemistry, it's a it's a chemical equation and you just have to kind of see where it goes. Um and and that's very much obviously the way that that Aaron Sorkin saw this right. show as well, which yeah. is I'll, I'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And at a certain point, Warner Brothers is like, you figuring it out is costing us a yes. lot of money. So maybe yes. we need to, you know, change that. So all that being said, I do think that this episode is emblematic of a real sort of turning point in the show i feel like you really get a sense of of between this episode and and the one uh, the the state of the union one you're really starting to get a sense of 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 the shortcomings that bartlett has within himself yes and how he needs other people to help him through that which i think on some level i don't want to say he resents but doesn't know how to deal with um i think all of that stuff is starting to come to bear uh, and you're starting to really see the show digging deeper and not just being the West Wing show, it's right. now getting into sort of the, the the real guts of these characters. Yeah, it's easy to be sort of deceived because, you know, Sorkin is such a uh, uh, agile writer. And it's, yeah. you know, but you do start to get a sense as you get into these double-digit episodes of first season of like the the orchestra has been tuning up Right. Yes, and yes, now yes. everyone is playing their part and everyone has a specific part to play in the ensemble. Mm-hmm. Everyone's tonality is starting to sort of assert itself, mm-hmm. you know, and the people who are going to fall away, as Mandy does eventually, become increasingly marginalized and so forth. And but you even see uh, CJ doesn't have all that much to do in this episode. I know you talked about in the uh, state dinner episode. It's the first like proper Allison Janney episode. There's uh, Every, you know, he's starting to discover what his ensemble can yes. do. And yes. the fact that this only has two stories to me makes it a great kind of, you know, five finger exercise for the ensemble because most of the characters, actually really all of them, because Josh has a foot in both stories, but most of the characters are brought to bear on this one story. And it's mm-hmm. it's nice to see everyone kind of, sp- even Joey Lucas, springing out of mm-hmm. this main story thread, which is so important, and everyone gets caught up in it. I, to- I totally agree. I You know, on the Alice and Janney thing, it's worth noting, uh, Alice and Janney was very oh, she sick, was sick during yeah, the making of this episode. This. So there's something, if, if she's really only got, she really has two scenes. Yeah. Uh, and one of them is her walking in the background uh, as Melissa Fitzgerald, her her assistant, Carol, is giving her information. And Allison Janney looks so sick. Like, she looks so miserable. Her whole body posture, you can just tell oh, that she's just like... God. So, like, she's just got this one walk. And then she has the scene where she obviously gives them the note at the end. She has the one scene with Mandy. Mandy, yeah. The Bechdel test scene. 
That's the Bechdel right. test. The Bechdel test. <laughs> it's, it is. It's the one scene she has. It looks like it's two, maybe three setups. It's just like yeah. let's get this shot. She's very good in it, but you can. She's sitting down. Like it's yes. just. It's definitely yeah. a very sort of. Uh, it's a light episode for Alice and Janie for obvious reasons. The end of this episode, though, the very last shot is such a beautifully powerful oh. over this this like God yeah. shot, bird's eye view of Bartlett uh, kneeling and and uh, and talking to his priest and confessing his sins. I want to ask you, as I have with all my guests at the end of these episodes, um, do you have a favorite couple episodes? Do you have episodes that jump out at you as episodes that have stuck with you? Um, <laughs> I mean, I, you know, I, I have a, a friend That's a face, who, if only everyone no, could no, see that. Well, here, no, here's the thing. I... I really love the show. It would sure. be easier for me to pick episodes I dislike than to say like what my favorite is. Like the Matthew Modine, you didn't like. the Matthew Modine I, I, one is a, is an abomination. Sure, sure, um, sure. But uh, uh, I do love this one. I think I think the pilot. You know, there's a couple of things you can kick holes in in the pilot, but the pilot in terms of setting up the ensemble, the sure. you know, and and giving Bartlett the greatest entrance in television history. I mean, it is outstanding. I, this may sound perverse. You know, I have a friend who was a who was a, a fan of James Bond films, and if you asked him what his favorite was, he would say On Her Majesty's Secret Service, which is sure. the most perverse guy. choice. Yeah, he was course. that guy. <laughs> My favorite episode is The Supremes. I, Interesting. I, I, and I know that that's a weird choice because it's not a Sorkin years episode, but it is the episode. one that I find endlessly, in addition to the pilot, it's the one that I've rewatched the most. Really? Um, yeah. I think it is just... Huh. It is masterful in a way that is not Sorkinish at all, and obviously it's got these True. two luminous guest stars that are Bill Fickner and Glenn Close, who are so damn good in it. But it is it feels in a lot of ways like an episode that could have been made during the Sorkin years yes. because it is about sort of compromise and collaboration. But seeing kind of the machine in the hands of other writers, it's just. It, it's an exciting episode to me. Mm-hmm. And people who are cynical about the post-Sorkin episodes who don't even want to watch those, I, go watch The Supremes. It is outstanding. I think it's one... I, I would put it in the top five over for the whole series. Um, I just think it's outstanding. I, I like know, the debate. I like, yeah, I like a lot of I, 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 You know, it's interesting you say that because I do think that um, I was one of those people. Um, I would watch the first four seasons religiously yeah, and stop. And like the show kind of ended. Um, and I liked season seven. I liked what they did with seven. Yeah, I kind sure. of jumped over five and six pretty consistently. And then during the, the pandemic and during the election, I did a rewatch. Um, I didn't watch this season or, or, or the second season. I watched three onward. And uh, I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to watch five and six. Haven't watched them, you know, in a very, very, very long time, don't really know them. I was very pleasantly surprised. I think that we we think of them as just absolutely not as good and because they're not Sorkin. And, and I will say, they don't do themselves any favors at the top of season five. Um, yes, In terms true. of just navigating the the Zoe kidnapping and just kind of it's just they drop a lot of balls up top yes. which is why I think people like myself would often start season five and go like ugh and then just kind of yes. drop off again so, uh, Supremes is a is a mid late season five episode and it's very very good uh, there's a lot of great stuff in season five uh, there's one of your fellow friends writers Alexa Alexa Young Alexa Young season, that's right uh, she's she wrote some phenomenal episodes um, it's it's really an interesting uh progression that the show goes through and i would i would argue that 
you know, had John Spencer not unfortunately passed away and, and had there not been some sort of stuff that happened, I think they could have done a Santos administration. I think they could yeah. have done a season eight and given it a shot and seen whether or not people stuck around and pulled some characters over and, and had others kind of come back periodically. I really think it's a, it's kind of a shame they didn't try, quite honestly. But. Yeah, I, I don't know. This is no knock against Jimmy Smith. I don't know if Matt Santos is an interesting enough president. That's the only thing. It just in terms, yeah. just the character. That's it. I, I like Jimmy Smith very much. And yeah. I think his performance is quite good. Once he stops trying to do a Texas accent. Um, yes. There's a weird thing early on where he's trying to be Texan. And yeah. I think somebody finally said, Jimmy, you don't have to do that anymore. But you, when we talk about how complex a character Bartlett is, and obviously the president is the hub of the wheel in the show. Maybe yeah. it wasn't devised that way, but it becomes the hub. I just don't know if watching Matt Santos grapple with an issue like yeah. the death penalty in this episode. I just don't know if it would have been as exciting. Yeah. Or as, I don't know if there's that many, I don't know if it goes as deep just because of you know, the way the I, character's devised. I, that's completely fair. And I, I don't disagree. I'll say this. Um, I, I think that part of why I agree is that at that moment in Jimmy Smith's career, and we're talking about 2005, 2006, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, is when the show, Jimmy Smith's, and I don't, I'm not suggesting that he's not an attractive man still, but he's still kind of got this like hot thing. Yeah. And, yeah. I, you know, I saw in the Heights recently, if it was Jimmy Smith's now, there's this this weight of wisdom, weight and of the world on about him, him yeah. weight of the yeah. world on him that I actually think that's a Santos I would have actually hundred percent. Yeah, I so agree with you. There's something about that like hot wife, hot hot dad, hot young dad thing. Like they were obviously tapping into, and they didn't even know it, but like there is some Obama in Santos. Yes, in for a sure. Lot of ways. So I, I totally agree with you. This is all just a long way of saying that I, I you know. I've asked this question to, to many of my guests. I've got the same answer from everybody. I'm going to ask you as well. Oh, okay. Would you be interested in some sort of a revival? A, a two, two-hour thing on Netflix? Do you think that there is a... I mean, everyone's answer has been no. Everyone's like, oh, it's done. Uh, is, is that really true? Everyone yeah. said no? I'm yeah. going to... Of course I'm interested. <laughs> oh, my God. What? I was going to say yes even before you said everyone said no. Yeah. How could you not be interested? Uh, I mean, yeah. uh, I don't disagree. Uh, we, why is that? Because the state of politics today is so broken. Is that why people are saying that? Because I think it comes down to a couple things. Revivals a are rocky. I think that Emily Nussbaum said it best when I had her on for the Sex in the City thing, and I asked her about that revival. I know what your feelings are on that revival, but I'll just say that her feelings on that revival were, uh, it's like Pet Cemetery; they never come back the same. And yeah. I think there's something to that that I think people are scared to see. I, I would people it with an entirely different group. I'd say it's the West Wing, but let's have an entirely different ensemble or one holdover or something yeah. just to kind of godfather it to the next generation. But again, I just want to go back to where we started. Sure. This yes, show please, was please. incubated in the aftermath of Clinton Lewinsky. Politics was broken then. Yes. So to yes. say like, oh, politics are so much more broken now. Well, they are yeah. broken, but in different ways. Yeah. I think you get a young, hot ensemble like this young hot ensemble and you do yeah. another show about life inside the West wing and political, you know, and, and sure. with all that we know about the 24 hour news cycle, which was barely a thing when this show got started, you know, 
blogging, internet, Twitter, all the other things that would be part of the West Wing universe today, I'd be excited to do that. Is Aaron Sorkin writing it? I got to be honest. I'm more excited about Aaron Sorkin doing that than pursuing his directing career. Sorry. So so two things. Yeah, no, 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 no. Don't apologize. Two things to to piggyback on that. The first is... um, I pitched this to one of or a couple of the guests, but I would absolutely watch a uh, a revival of some sort that revolves around Charlie running for Senate uh, and some of our people being involved in him run for Senate. I'd also a hundred. I know that she probably wouldn't do it, but I'd a hundred percent watch Elizabeth Moss and him get you know if him and Zoe got married or something like that. You could bring Bartlett back into it. There's ways to kind of do this in in an interesting and clever way and not make a 22 episode season of a thing. You could do two, two hour episodes for Netflix or something like that. Like there's a way to kind of give us some sense of either closure or to your point, send us off into completely different terrain and make yeah, a new thing. I, I would be as, as little beholden to the previous show as possible. I would have it be like a handoff. Interesting. Okay. You know, I would That's like fair. say, let's take the tonality and the emphases and the idealism of the mm-hmm. West Wing. And let's, I mean, I'm talking about Muppet Babies is I guess what I'm I, saying. I, I, All right? I, that's the sense I'm getting. That's, yeah. And let's do West Wing the next generation. I would absolutely love to see that show. The other thing that you mentioned that, that I'd be remiss if I didn't uh, highlight a little bit, you said Aaron Sorkin's direction. And I think there's some, no, no, you're, you're not wrong. And I, I want to unpack this just very quickly before we wrap this up. Don't want to knock the guy. I love the guy. No, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not really knocking him. I just think that there's a modulation issue, which is kind of the bump for me when it comes to him directing his own words. I want to highlight a moment that you highlighted in the final scene where the priest says, Jed, do you want to confess your sins? That line is He's essentially off set off camera. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That line is said, on Jed as he's like basically on the verge of tears as he's you know grappling with what he's grappling with the directors that have directed Aaron Sorkin's scripts understand what line needs to be said on camera what line needs to be at 11 and what line needs to be thrown away and Aaron I don't think knows how to throw away any of his lines like doesn't know how that modulation works yet he might and i i have a good feeling that he will get the hang of it but there's a part of me to your point where it's like i've watched two of his films now i'm seeing a guy who's just like everything's super important and you're like it can't all be important yeah i i i just think look i would love to see we have plenty of wonderful examples of screenwriters turned directors francis coppola i mean i would love to see him become a visual stylist and start to understand that the words don't always have to tell the story you know uh at least 50 percent of the panache of the west wing comes from the template that tommy Mm -hmm. shlami set that other directors emulated or contradicted at times um and so I would love to see him blossom into a great filmmaker. This is no animus against Aaron Sorkin. I have, I, I really respect the guy. He's just, I mean, how many Nate Brand screenwriters do we have? Like, Seriously. He's amazing. Um, he's brilliant. Yeah. Uh, the other thing that's exciting to me about uh, his involvement in a West Wing reboot or reimagining or sequel or something is I, I like him working with characters that weren't real people. Uh, yes. I I, I think yes. he's done a lot of movies in a row. I happen to be I I'm a Steve Jobs stan. I happen yeah, to I like love that thing, film. Yeah. Yeah, I think right. that film works better on the small screen than the big screen. But I, he's done a number of excellent films about real people. He's doing the Lucy Lucille Ball thing now. But like, uh, let's is. let him make some shit up. 
let's force yeah. him to make some stuff up because like these characters are beautifully drawn and beautifully embellished. And so I would like to see him start with a blank sheet of paper. Like, wouldn't well, that be uh, great? Totally. It's one of the, I would, I think most people agreed, one of the major missteps in the newsroom was shackling himself to real life yeah, stories that happened. And you just, you first of all, you've removed all drama because we know how it plays out. So like, that's a whole thing. So there's this element of like the push and pull of, of, of dramatic, you know, stakes yeah. and what have you. Um, but I, but I agree with you hundred percent. I would, I would love to see him just sit down and whole cloth, give us something completely new. That's just, you know, that's new characters and, and yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, we'll see how this, this Lucy and Desi movie plays out. I, I, have you, have you read the script? Did you do? No. Do you, do have you, you know read it? About? Really? I, yeah. I mean, it's one night, right? Isn't it one it's, night? It's one day in the shooting of an episode of I Love Listen, Lucy. <laughs> I, I, I think Steve Jobs is great. I just feel like at a certain point, it's like, how many pop culture figures are you going to deconstruct? It's like, yeah, you know, I just, it's, <laughs> I, I would re, like I said, blank sheet of paper would be incredibly exciting to me. This guy is such an incredible stylist with characters. He, you know, built a version of Mark Zuckerberg that we enjoyed watching, a version of yeah. Steve Jobs, a version of Abby Hoffman and so forth. Yeah. But like, ugh, how about not a version? You know, I, I yes. just think it would be, I, I just, I it would be, it would excite me. I, I worry about this guy getting to an exalted level where no one will say no to him. And I, I think it would be good if somebody, even if, listen, even if it's an adaptation of a John Updike novel, something that requires some like meaningful embellishment and takes place, as you alluded to, in a fictional world. Well, you know, I, you know, I think that if you, if you took a poll and asked people, you know, your, tell me your favorite Aaron Sorkin characters. You know, the, the reality is that it would be a list of West Wing characters. 100%. And then, Sports you night. Know, yeah. And then, you know, you know then, then maybe Zuckerberg and what have you. But, it's, but that's the truth, right? Like, when I think about C.J. Craig and Sam Seaborn and Toby Ziegler yeah. and, 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 and Jed Bartlett, you know, these characters are just so beautifully rendered, so loved so three-dimensional um i i i agree with you I, I i i hope that we get to see him either go back to the west wing well at some point or at the very least just sit down and, and give us something completely new so yeah here's hoping yeah but here's hoping anything, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this with me jeff i just only hope as as i said when i did the peanuts episode i'm mightily intimidated by these totemic pop culture behemoths so thank sure. you for giving me the opportunity to take on what in Please. any measure is one of the top five west wing episodes so thanks for giving me a shot of course i enjoyed the conversation thanks for having me of course of course thank you so much and now that we're done um do you think i could reach out to paul and and see if he would come on to do uh give it a shot okay give it a shot why not you can reach okay, out to cool. paul you can reach out to alexa if you want Oh no, that won't that won't be in your purview. That's right. That's after her. That's after her. Shoot. Yeah, she did good. work on but Sex in the City. I don't know. She, she did yes, you can reach city. out to Paul. I'm sure. Okay, I, cool. It's so funny. I didn't get to talk about all the stuff I heard from Paul. Oh well, it's all good. No, no, no. Um, no worries about it. But you I can I, absolutely reach out to him. I would love to you know, see if he'd come on for 20 minutes and just talk. About he the did do. Bit, he did one episode of West Wing Weekly. So that's uh, a precedent. And so I'm sure he is open to talking about it. And of course, <laughs> he. You know, not only did he do, he did Sports Night, West Wing, and Newsroom, and newsroom with Aaron. So this is a guy who knows. Aaron's process more intimately than most. And uh, I don't know why he didn't do Studio 60. I think he was busy that year. He was doing something else. He might have dodged a bullet on Studio 60. Yeah. 
<laughs> but, but honestly, Jeff, thank you so, so much for coming on. And obviously, um, I mean, there's a, still a slew of television left to cover. And obviously, you're going to come on when we do our 7-Up series at some point. Uh, that is going to happen. Don't worry. One last thing. Please rate, review, and subscribe. Uh, speaking of subscribing, check out our Patreon on all the best films of 1989. Batman, When Harry Met Sally, Fabulous Baker Boys, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, Ghostbusters 2, Field of Dreams, Major League, and many, many more. We are covering all the best films of 1989 with amazing guests like Joanna Robinson, Liz Hanna, Hunter Covington, Brian Cogman, David Iserson, and many, many more. All your favorite guests from our 1999 podcast are coming on to the 1989 Patreon. You can sign up for it at patreon.com backslash podcast like it's 1989. For only $5, you get access to all of these awesome episodes. And for a few bucks more, you get video of our 1999 episodes as well. Plus, there are other very cool tiers too, where you can even be a guest on our podcast. Please check out our Reddit as well at reddit.com backslash podcast like it's. We're also on Twitter at podcast like it's 1999. We're also on Instagram at podcast like it's 1999. Uh, thank you so much to Ernie and Will for producing our episodes, Sullivan for our social media, Yon Katas for our amazing art and theme songs. And most of all, thank you all for Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.